Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Will. I'm Anna, and today we're thrilled to have Robert Kagan with us. Dr. Kagan is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a contributing columnist to the Washington Post. Dr. Kagan earned his bachelor's degree from Yale University, his master's degree in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School, and his doctorate from American University. Throughout his career, Dr. Kagan has worked for statesmen including Congressman Jack Kemp, Secretary of State George Shultz, and Senator John McCain. Dr. Kagan has authored several books, including the New York Times bestseller, The World America Made, and most recently, The Jungle Grows Back, America and Our Imperiled World. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Kagan. My pleasure. To get started, we'd like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal life. Can you share a moment with us? Sure, there's probably been uh, a number of them. I, I suppose the first inflection point was when I went to work uh, in the State Department for George Schultz at the policy planning staff. I was George Schultz's speechwriter, uh, amazingly, at an absurdly young age, um, which frightened my father uh, to think that I was putting words in the secretary's mouth, but it was a tremendous experience. Uh, that was in the 80s, if you can imagine how far back that was. Um, and I, that obviously, the working in government as someone who later has spent decades writing about American foreign policy, there is, in some respects, no substitute for actually being in government and having uh, a sense of how policy is made. Uh, I think when you're on the outside, it's possible to have all kinds of theories, including conspiracy theories about how things work. When you're on the inside, it's pretty clear that that the dominant force is chaos, and uh, people are not really capable of carrying out some of these conspiracies. But anyway, it was uh, as a historian, it was tremendously educational for me. And what was it like growing up with two educators, a professor at Yale and an elementary school teacher as parents? Did that impact your decision to study history or, or anything? Actually, I'm sure it did, although I tried very hard not to pursue uh, that same line of work. I, my father... Uh, was a professor at Cornell and Yale for decades and decades. I felt like that 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 area had been covered. Um, so I went into the government. I thought I was going to have a government career. And then my other inflection point was when that government career ended. And then I wound up uh, heading into uh, the history business. So um, I, I'm sure that it was faded in some respect, but I did fight against it as best as best I could. We've been talking about uh, your experience studying history, and you've said before that history training is the best preparation for thinking about foreign policy. And I think at a certain level of abstraction, you might be able to say that about any social science, that ultimately all of the theory of government is just history. All the theory of economics is based on economic history, perhaps even. Why do you think that's true in particular of international relations? Well, I think that you know every attempt that is made and has been made to create theoretical constructs about how nations behave uh, is, is pretty, have been pretty faulty. Um, and the thing that history teaches you is obviously there are patterns in history, but then there's also the particularities of every situation. Uh, countries behave in, in certain ways except when they don't. Um, individuals obviously are the same. And I think that, you know, history is a guide both to what can happen and and what need not happen. And it mostly it directs you away from any sense of inevitability. Um, you know, so much of what happens in the world uh, is uh, the result of an infinite number uh, of small decisions. Things did not have to turn out 
the way they did. And that, I think as you look ahead, um, it also makes you not fatalistic, either in a good way or a bad way, uh, either pessimistic or optimistic about the future. It makes you understand that, you know, you're capable of, of shaping uh, that future by the decisions you make. You mentioned that one of the factors uh, that really makes studying history difficult and meaningful is how many different points can uh, lead any phenomenon to go a different way than we might think and how there's an infinite number of uh, influencers, as you said. In your own work of kind of punditry and uh, forecasting the present into the future, making policy decisions, how do you weigh that kind of existential doubt of how it's so difficult to figure out what's going to have any X lead to any given Y? Yeah. No, it, it's a it's a problem. It's a problem for policymakers, and it's a problem, as you say, for people who write about these things. And, you know, one of the things that you learn from someone like George Shultz, it's also what uh, Dean Acheson, who was another great Secretary of State, uh, uh, said, is that you have absolutely imperfect information. You you don't know the things you would like to know in order to make a decision, and yet you have to act. You have to make decisions, and so you have to make the best decisions you can with the information you have, and you're going to make mistakes. I mean, one of the things that I'm that I'm very conscious of in my own work, and also I think people need to be conscious of in general, is that the human being is a frail and flawed being, and the human mind is flawed, and that, you know, to expect, especially in foreign policy, where there were so many factors involved, uh, that you're going to be able to succeed even a majority of the time, unfortunately, is wrong. I always compare foreign policy to to, uh, you know, baseball, a baseball average, if you miss, uh, if you can make an out 70% of the time, you're going to the Hall of Fame. Um, and I think foreign policy is like that too. But we have a tendency to demand and expect uh, a kind of record of success in foreign policy that I think unfortunately is not available. So as a policy expert and a journalist, your opinions are constantly being published and scrutinized and picked apart. How have you learned uh, to respond, uh, to overcome criticism on various issues? Well, you know, I think, first of all, criticism is part of what we do. Um, I'm critical, too. Um, and I think mostly uh, what you have to do is, is try to absorb criticism, uh, learn from your own mistakes, learn from what others have to say, um, but also not to be, you know, in a way paralyzed by the fact that <laughs> that you're being criticized. You know, if you if you continually examine your own views and examine, uh, you know, the information that you have, you still have to have ultimately the courage of your convictions. I'm a little struck, especially because I'm an old guy. And so the whole, you know, the Twitter world is a is a new phenomenon. I'm not on Twitter. I'm, I'm stunned by how affected people are by Twitter attacks. Um, the fact that, you know, in, in many cases, hundreds of anonymous people are criticizing you. Well, my assumption is they were criticizing you before. You just didn't know about it. Um, and now, but I'm really sort of amazed at how people, you know, are, are affected by this. Um, you know, you have to, when you're out there making an argument, you have to, you know, you have to stick up for what you believe and, and take the criticisms that come with it. So transitioning from uh, criticism to praise, uh, one notable moment in your career that I think 
some people might have found surprising, given your policy proclivities, is that President Obama significantly drew on uh, some of your work in his 2012 State of the Union address. And it was even reported by Foreign Policy magazine that he talked about it extensively in private meetings in the run-up to the speech, going paragraph by paragraph, quoting it and breaking it down to people in meetings. Was there any outgrowth from that relationship? Did that give you any little bit of an in on the administration, or was it just a random connection that floated off? I mean, it wasn't random. I did wind up, I did wind up having lunch with President Obama and discussing foreign policy with him, which I think mostly he wanted to make sure that he was right and I was wrong, and he conv- I'm sure he came away believing that that was in fact the case. I mean, it, it, with any with any politician who is citing you, they're citing you for a reason. In that case. And I was obviously thrilled that President Obama was quoting what I was writing, but he what I what he was quoting was my argument at the time that America was not in decline, that um, and since the his his opponent, who at the time was Mitt Romney, was arguing that Obama was driving the country into decline, he was quoting me saying, "No, we're not in decline," you know. So it was, it it served his purposes uh, at the time, and that's 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 normal for politicians. But I've, I must say, I've, I've generally the one thing that I am pleased by is that I think that you know, I've been able to at least reach and 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 talk to and even in some cases influence both Democrats and Republicans. And I do not consider myself a partisan. I've, I've left the Republican Party, but I never was that committed to any party. I'm mostly committed to a certain view of foreign policy, which could be right or wrong. Uh, so it's always been gratifying to me when when members of both parties have been, you know, in some way informed or or happy about what I've written. So speaking of sort of the Obama administration, uh, I understand that your wife is a former um, secretary or assistant secretary of state um, sort of during that that period of of um, the past 10 years, uh, and your brother is a resident scholar at AEI. How has having a family who's very politically active uh, influenced your political views or made dinner conversation more engaging or complex? Well, I mean, uh, speaking of my, w- I mean, my wife is a, has retired, but she was a career foreign service officer for 32 years. So she worked for Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, uh, the Clinton, mm-hmm. uh, Bill Clinton. He was, she was secretary of Clinton's um, spokeswoman and you know she's she works for both parties so I don't think she's political um, associated with any particular party I mean ironically every time she worked for the last party the next party thinks well you must be a Democrat or you must be a Republican but that's not the way it is um, I would say mostly I've just learned tremendously from her uh, experience as a practitioner I mean she's the consummate diplomat and has been as I say for 30 plus years and I just have learned so much about about policy and how government works just just being with her so and you know we have our disagreements and we when we were first dating uh you know there was always the sunday morning argument over the new york times and that that, i i guess it didn't ruin our relationship because we're still married all these years later you mentioned her role as a practitioner you for a while now haven't quite been playing that role you've been somewhat on the outside commenting in what was the origin of that decision to take a step back from being a speechwriter or a direct foreign policy advisor from, say, Senator McCain, uh, Congressman Kemp, uh, Secretary Schultz, and play more of an academic think tank role? Well, again, partly it was just uh, circumstance. Um, uh, I, after I was, I, I, I left the Reagan administration, 
1988, and then I wound up not working in the next Republican administration. Uh, my wife was posted in Moscow, and uh, I went and went with her to Moscow and worked on a book about Nicaragua out there. And um, and then, I mean, you want to talk about inflection points. The other inflection point was. Uh, for reasons that I can't even quite understand at this point, I decided to go back to graduate school when I was in my late 30s, and I went to American University. And I thought that I would, since I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, I thought I would be sort of punching my ticket so I could get a job as a professor. And I never really wound up doing that, but I actually got an extraordinarily great education, which really had a big impact uh, on my on the trajectory of my life. And that's when I decided what I really wanted to be was, ironically enough, a historian. And I get so much more pleasure. That's, I'm not, I don't think, a good government official. I don't think I'm suited to be a good government official. My wife is suited to be that. Um, what I really enjoy, even more than commentating, honestly, is just history, is just trying to understand what happened and why it happened. So just to backtrack a little bit. So you studied history in your undergraduate um, what made you want to sort of transition into working in public policy and then ultimately to sort of move back <laughs> into history? And how have you been able to blend those sort of interests into one career? Well, right. I mean, as I say, you know, after I, I was trying very hard not to go into my father's profession um, for reasons that I think any one of us would understand. And I thought that I would like to go into government. And I had a very enjoyable, if somewhat overly exciting government career in my 20s. Um, and then it ended. It ended not necessarily because I wanted it to end, but just because that's what happens. And I mean, anyone who goes into the government who's not a career civil servant uh, needs to know that it's a very um, uncertain career path. And politics change, and when politics change, sometimes that, that affects you. So I wound up being sort of pulled out of government. But, uh, you know, I would, I'd always been a, a, someone who enjoyed writing, and, I, you know, that was my first job out of college was as an assistant editor at a magazine working for Irving Kristol, and I always wanted to be like Irving Kristol and be an essayist. And so it was a pretty natural transition for me after government to sort of try to use what I'd learned in government and apply it to uh, writing history and writing about foreign policy. So you've got me convinced that people who need to, who want to write about foreign policy and be part of thought leadership on these issues need to understand history. Do you think that we need to do more as well ha to have actual practitioners, like you were saying, understand history? Is there a historical illiteracy in our kind of actual ruling political class that should be addressed? I mean, I think in general, we uh, uh, this is you know especially true of Americans. We don't pay enough attention to history, including our own history, and I think we should. Uh, you know, I do think practitioners should be more aware of history. But look, it's inevitably the case that practitioners are practitioners. The history that they acquire is the history that they've experienced. Uh, you know, I don't know what, uh, I'm sure people of, you know, of Dean Acheson's era were better educated uh, in history. But, you know, then you're also, I don't totally trust historians. <laughs> so, you can, I mean, I know enough history uh, to know that historians don't always get it right either. And the lessons that they that you might derive from a particular history could be the wrong lessons. So I don't want to overstate that. But I, I, yes, I do think that just as historians would benefit from experience as practitioners, practitioners would benefit from a greater knowledge of history. I think that nowadays we've seen 
people working to paint more complete pictures of history. What do you think could be done to do that and sort of to incorporate uh, a more holistic understanding of history into like our, our foreign policy uh, and even public policy in America? Well, I think there's no question. For me, what I find in dealing with American foreign policy is that even American historians are too focused on judging America in isolation from the rest of the world. Now, that doesn't mean Americans shouldn't hold ourselves to higher standards. I think we try to hold ourselves to higher standards. But, you know, in the real world, nations all behave in a a roughly similar way. I think America may be you know, sometimes behaves better and sometimes behaves worse than other nations. But I think it's important when you look at the United States to put it in the context uh, of all the powers that have ever been in a position similar to the United States and and measure uh, America against that real world example, uh, as well as hoping that America can sort of do better. Um, and I think that's, a sub- that's, that's kind of an error we make. Um, and therefore, which leads to you know, there's a constant cycle in American foreign policy of very idealistic expectations followed by disillusionment when those expectations are not met. I think if we had a kind of more balanced view of what the real world is like, uh, we could somehow, we could avoid both the excessive idealism and the excessive disillusionment. So to put the rubber to the road for a second, try and actually apply some history and ask for some foreign policy analysis from you as a result, some people look at uh, the United States and its current era and say, well, every single time in history, there's been a rising power coming to challenge a ruling power. You know, Disproportionately, that results in uh, what has been expressed in some cases as the Thucydides trap named after a historian. Uh, that that means that ultimately in our era we're doomed to rising powers as a ruling power, namely China, uh, who is more is likely to eclipse us. Do you think that's good use of history, bad use of history? Uh, I think it's a it's a it's tricky, uh, and the reason I say that is because of course, not only is it historically true, but it makes logical sense that when. When a rising power rises, uh, it usually seeks to change the international system in such a way as to benefit it because the rising power is entering a system that was shaped by others. And so invariably, they want to change it. That was certainly, again, that was true of the United States, which entered a world that had been shaped by Britain and Europe. And America clearly reshaped that world uh, to suit its own preferences. Um, every world order fits the preferences of the strongest powers in it. So as a country like China rises, if it continues to rise in this way, it's going to want to reshape the world for its preferences, uh, which some of which I think are compatible with our interests and some of which are going to be incompatible with it. So all of which leads to say, well, and that could lead to conflict and has in the past. I actually believe uh, that we don't have to have a major conflict with China Um, And I do think, and this is something that history also tells you, uh, the United States actually occupies a very unusual position historically. No nation has ever been in the situation the United States is in, partly because of geography, partly because of its wealth, partly because of its relative invulnerability and its ability to project power. Um, The alliance structure that the United States created is very stable we're in the business of undermining it right now, but that really takes a lot of work, and I'm impressed with how much work we're putting into that. 
Um, but I would say that China faces a very difficult um, course in trying to reshape the order uh, because of this alliance structure that the United States has in place. I think if we just continue to play the role we've been playing, we can steer China in a more peaceful and beneficial direction rather than uh, one that is a course toward war. So the last question that we like to ask all of our guests uh, is how do you define success and how can you help our listeners to define success for themselves? Personal success. Yes. Well, I guess I'm old enough to say some trite things like the most important element of success is 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 the people you love and the people uh, that you've spent your life with. And uh, I can say that, you know, in terms of my wife and my children, that I'm, I, this has been the greatest source of my happiness. And the rest of success, again, it sounds like a cliche, but everything else is, is really secondary to that. Um, other than that, I would say you really, you should do what, what really brings you the most, again, it's trite, but it, what brings you the most fulfillment. And the more you're satisfying yourself and not trying to fit some image of what other people think success is, the more likely you are to be happy. That's, these are just incredibly boring Hallmark card homilies, uh, but I, that's, that's what I would say. Thank you. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Uh, thank you again for joining us, Dr. Kagan, and to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.